because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give his life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Thank you so much uh, for reading, Naomi. Um, rooted, um, because it's, it's lovely to have you in with us this morning. Move out of the way, there we go. A um, little question just to keep you somewhat alert and awake. Uh, what difference does being a Christian make to your life, do you think? What difference does being a Christian make to your life? Have a little think about that as we go through. The rest of us, let me pray as we come to God's words together. Heavenly Father, what wonderful words. There is therefore now no condemnation. Lord, I sense that I will not be able to do justice to the significance and meaning of those words, but praise be to you that your spirit is at work amongst us. And may the profound truth of what those words mean hit each of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who are, who are Shrek fans, uh, who isn't, by the way, um, Shrek 2, uh, you might remember a scene in Shrek 2 when Shrek, who's this kind of green and ugly ogre, um, who is in love with the beautiful princess Fiona, and he, he, he gets to that point where he thinks, maybe my looks uh, are, are a bit of a hindrance. Maybe I need to change the way I look. So he wants to look like a handsome prince and he gets hold of some potion from some dodgy person in a bar and, and it promises that it will change the way that he looks. And he drinks the potion and he puts all his hope in it. And then he waits. Now we kind of think this is a fairy tale, don't we? This is kind of madness and craziness. Who would ever do such a thing? But then it dawned on me actually as I was thinking about this. Um, we're kind of very similar, aren't we? You know, take this Put this cream on your hair and suddenly you'll get more hair. It'll change the way you look. Take these pills and you'll lose some, some, some weight. Put this cream on your face, get rid of the wrinkles. It made me think that Shrek is basically a parody of the modern cosmetic industry. We're all trying to do the same thing. We take our, our potions and put on our creams and we hope that it's going to change the way we look. That's just a 
beside the point, really. It's got nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. But anyway, back to Shrek. With, with excitement, he takes this potion and he hopes that it will change the way that he looks. But then he goes and looks at his face in a pool of water and nothing. Nothing at all. All that anticipation, all that hope, and it comes to nothing. Nothing has changed. And there is something of that that we experience, not so much with the kind of anti-wrinkle cream and the weight loss drugs. There is something spiritually of that that we experience, isn't there? Those of us who are Christians, those of us who have put our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus, we've heard those promises of the gospel. Follow Jesus and you will experience life. Follow the Lord Jesus and he will transform you. We've heard those promises. We drank in Jesus. We put our faith and our hope in him. But then, well, it seems that nothing has changed in our life. If Jesus is true, if the gospel is powerful, why does the worst of me still seem to linger on? Why sin? If Jesus is true and the gospel is powerful, why does the worst of life in this world still seem to oppress me? Loneliness, pain, sickness. Why suffering? And if Jesus is true and the gospel is powerful, why does the worst of fates, death, fast or slow, still await me? Why die? If Jesus, why sin, why suffering, why death, why does it feel like nothing's changed? Well, we're going to spend these few weeks in Romans 8, and it's that very question, I think, that Paul is dealing with here. In chapters 1 to 4, he lays out the glorious gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone. And then in chapters 5 to 8, he deals with all the reasons why we might think that that gospel has failed. Sin, suffering, and death. And chapter 8 is this beautiful conclusion. Jesus is true. The gospel is powerful. Our lives really have been transformed. Let's think about that. First of all, we experience freedom from the penalty of sin. Verses 1 to 4. Listen to chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, writes Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation. It's a heavy word, isn't it? Carries all sorts of negative ideas with it. You are wrong. You will be punished. You are guilty. You should feel ashamed. That feeling, that that sense of condemnation, I think it hangs over a lot of us, doesn't it? You know, when dark moments from our past come back and haunt us, we feel condemned. When we compare ourselves to others, we we know we shouldn't do it, but we can't help it. We compare ourselves to others, and other people seem more together. Their kids are better behaved, they can hold down a job, they just seem less needy, and we feel condemned. Kind of whole council culture thing doesn't help either, does it? You, know, you put something out there, you share something on social media or in a conversation with friends, and you can tell straight away that it's the wrong opinion. It doesn't fit with the approved opinions of our culture. And people go quiet, you get a few snarky comments. You feel condemned. I think so many of us carry around a sense of condemnation, a sense of, of guilt, a sense of fault. 
And it is a horrible feeling, isn't it? To feel ashamed and isolated and unclean. It's like living under permanently grey skies. Hangs over us. In his book, Unapologetic, Francis Spufford talks about this feeling and he, he writes, when the conviction of it settles in, when we reach one of those stages of our lives where the story of our failure hangs in our chests like a weight, you need to call it what it is. It's guilt that drags at your steps. It's guilt that paints the morning black. There's something about feeling. And that is why 8 verse 1 is like the sun bursting through. There is therefore now no condemnation. Paul is saying it is possible to live your life under a different sky. Not the dark and cloudy gloom of guilt, but the bright and liberating sky of no condemnation. That is what the gospel offers. That's the change that it promises. So who's this for? Well, listen again to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not for anyone. It's only for those who are in Christ. Why? Because only Christ Jesus can deal with our guilt. Only he can take away our condemnation. Paul goes on in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. First God gave us his law and then he gave us his son. And he needed to send his son because the law was powerless. Now let me explain. The law of God should have led to life. It's beautiful, fruitful, joyful life. Think of the Ten Commandments. They tell us how to love God and how to love those around us. Keep those commandments, stay within the parameters of those commandments and you would flourish. So would your family. So would the the community that you live within. So would creation itself. Keep God's law and there would be freedom and fairness and justice and joy. But although God's law showed us what the good life is, it was unable to help us live that good life. It was powerless. And Paul says it was powerless, it was weakened by the flesh. That is, it was weakened because of us. There is nothing wrong with God's law. The problem is with us. Now, if you were to give me a sewing machine, And say, look, could you make me a shirt with a button-down collar? What you would end up with is a mess of fabric and cotton and buttons all over the floor. The fault isn't with the sewing machine. There's nothing wrong with the sewing machine. The fault is with me. I can't sew. And the law of God is good. We just cannot obey it. Our hearts, our desires, they're corrupt. They are twisted. And so God's law is powerless. It's powerless to stop us choosing the path of self-love and rebellion. But what the law was powerless to do, verse 3, God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. First, God gave us his law and then he gave us his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus became like us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That does not mean that Jesus sinned like us. Came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Didn't come in sin. Instead, it means that he's clothed himself in our fallen and frail humanity. But he was without sin. You know, sometimes we feel the temptation to sin. It builds up inside us because our own desires are corrupt. Jesus never experienced that. His internal desires were never corrupt. So Jesus became like us. He became like us so that he could die for us. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Sin offering is a sacrifice from the Old Testament. The sinner would bring their offering before the priest. The priest would kill the animal. And as the animal was consumed by flames, the sinner would look on and know the judgment of God fell on that beast rather than on me. And so it is with Jesus. The judgment of God against my sin fell on Jesus rather than me. Look how Paul sums it up in the end of verse 3. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. I wasn't condemned. My sin was condemned in Jesus. And do you know what? There's more. Not only has Jesus been condemned instead of me. I am also positively declared righteous. Listen to verse 4. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. You see, because of Jesus, when God looks at me, he considers me not as a lawbreaker, but as a law keeper. As someone who has fully met the righteous requirements of his law. That is, he declares me to be righteous. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus is treated like me, a sinner, a lawbreaker, who is condemned by God, and remarkably, I am treated like Jesus, a law keeper, innocent and guiltless before the Lord. I guess you could say it's a little like a marriage. You know, a few of us uh, were at Jack and Amy's wedding back in July. It was a beautiful occasion, wonderful time. But you think, the thing is, the moment that they got married, then legally everything they had was shared. What was Jack's became Amy's, and what was Amy's became Jack's. I don't know who did best out of that deal, but, but everything they had, shared. And so it is with us and Jesus. What is his becomes ours. His righteous, law-keeping, standing before God. And what is ours becomes his, our law-breaking sin and condemnation. That's why Paul can say those words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is going to be a slightly heavier morning than perhaps normal, because I just want to take us a little bit further here. There's an obvious question, isn't there? Why should the life and death of a man who lived 2,000 years ago have any bearing on me today? 
Well, to benefit from what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, we need to be connected to Jesus or united to Jesus. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. Listen to what Paul says in verse 2. We skipped over it. For the law of the Spirit, the rule, the power of the Spirit, has set you free in Christ. The Spirit has set you free in Christ through union to Christ. The Spirit sets us free by uniting us to Jesus. Stick with that marriage illustration. When Jack and Amy got married, someone, the minister in this time was me, married them. I said the words, I now pronounce you man and wife. And from that point on, that is what they were. That's what they are. United to one another, joined together. Well, the Spirit does something similar. He is like the minister in a wedding ceremony. When we put our faith in Jesus, he is the one who unites us together, who joins us together. So that what is true of Jesus is true of me. It is the spirit who sets us free from the penalty of sin, God's condemnation, by uniting us to Christ. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, free from the penalty of sin. Now look, before moving on, please hear that word now. Now, in the present, at this moment, no condemnation. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, put your faith in him, you are not condemned. You are not guilty. So stop living under the dark skies of condemnation. Yes, we must confess our sin. Yes, we must repent of our sin, but you must also know that it is fully forgiven. No condemnation. The other week I was listening to a podcast about Scott's failed attempt to uh, get to the South Pole. Was it the South Pole or the North Pole? I wasn't listening very good. Clearly no one else knows, so that's brilliant. So uh, Scott's failed attempt to get to the South Pole and back. You know the story. They, they made it to the pole, but they ran out of provisions. They never made it home again. And when they discovered the bodies of the, those lost explorers, there were diaries. And you could read about the, the, the last days of these men as they tried to battle to get home. It's painful reading. And they wrote about old scars that began to reappear. And old wounds, once healed, opening up and falling apart again. They were describing the effects of scurvy, an acute lack of vitamin C, when old wounds, long healed, reopen. And there is, of course, a spiritual kind of scurvy, isn't there? We torment ourselves with past sins. Or the devil brings them to our mind again and again. And old sin, long forgiven, reopens. We feel ashamed all over. Feel we must keep our distance from God. Feel we do not belong in a, a gathering like this. But listen, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. At this very moment, you are not condemned. You are not guilty. Do not let those scars and wounds reopen. So has anything changed? Of course it's changed. Jesus, through the Spirit, has freed us from the penalty of sin. There is now no condemnation. We live under the smile of the Lord. But wonderfully, that change does not stop there. The Spirit frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but secondly, from the power as well. Listen to verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Without Jesus, before we believed the gospel, we lived, Paul says, according to the flesh. That is, we lived according to our fallen nature, our, our sinful nature. And that means the fundamental desires of our hearts, the deep down orientation of our life was towards sin. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds, their inner being, set on what the flesh desires. In the flesh, our instinct, what comes naturally to us, is to be self-orientated. It's things like self-promotion and self-protection and self-glory. Without Christ, we live under the power of sin. And it is a power that enslaves. Look at verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You know, Paul doesn't say the life lived under sin doesn't want to keep God's law, doesn't want to please God. No, he says it cannot. Without Jesus, we cannot please God. Life lived in the flesh without the spirit is a life enslaved. You could read that and think, well, does that mean that everyone who isn't a follower of Christ is a terrible human being? Because I just know that isn't true. Well, no, that's not what Paul is saying. For every human being made in the image of God, there will always be times and episodes of love and goodness in our lives. Moments and times when we reflect the kind of life God wants us to live. In the novel, The Book Thief. One of the characters is talking about humanity and he, he captures this contrast. He writes, I wanted to tell the book thief many things about beauty and brutality. I, I wanted to explain that I am constantly overestimating and underestimating the human race. Rarely do I ever simply estimate it. I wanted to ask her how the same thing could be so ugly and so glorious and its words and stories so damning and so brilliant. That is life in the flesh. It is beauty and brutality. It is ugly and glorious. It is damning and brilliant. But the tragedy is that it is more of one than the other. Listen to how Paul describes that life in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. 
Life lived in the flesh under the influence and power of sin is death. He doesn't say it will lead to death one day. No, life lived in the flesh, it is death right now. Kind of true, isn't it? In the sense that our presence in this world and our interactions with others, our impact on creation is more death than life. It's more brutality than beauty. It is more ugliness than glory. It is more damning than brilliance. Life in the flesh is life enslaved by sin. We cannot please God. And then you look at the contrast in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And you see, with the Spirit indwelling us, we are given new desires and a new orientation. We desire what He desires. We desire love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. We desire Christ and God the Father. We love his law and long to obey it. And those new desires push back even now the effects of sin in this world. So look at the contrast again in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. He's not saying it will one day lead to life and peace. It is now life and peace. So as we live according to the Spirit, as we listen to the Lord and follow his ways, as we learn selflessness and what it is to sacrifice, as we believe truth and discover courage to stick to that truth, And to some extent, we spread life and peace instead of death and destruction. Nothing changed. The Spirit has set us free from the power, the rule, the kingdom of sin. Even now, our lives should increasingly be more beauty than brutality. More glorious than ugly. More brilliance than damning. Even now free from the penalty of sin free from the power of sin and finally freedom from the presence of sin you know so far Paul has been talking about life in the present the transformation that the spirit has brought to us right now now there is no condemnation now we have life in the spirit But then in verses 9 to 11, he looks ahead to what is to come. And it's life forever. Verse 9, you, however, are not in uh, uh, the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The life that we begin now in the spirit will be a life that never ends. And only then, in the resurrection, 
will the fleshy nature, the sinful nature be fully gone. Only then will the presence of sin be banished from our lives fully. And we can be 100% certain of that. Because look who it is who dwells in us. These verses are so rich, 9 to 11. In verse 9, it is the Spirit of God who dwells in us. In verse 9 and 10, it is also the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. And then in verse 11, it is the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father who dwells in us. The Spirit in us is the living God, the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit in us is life itself dwelling within the believer. Of course, death cannot hold us. And of course, sin cannot remain. The living God who dwells within us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is light. He is true, pure, brilliant, righteous, beautiful light. I've been watching a bit of the Hobbit film with Lara. People say I've only ever read a couple of books, Harry Potter and, and Lord of the Rings and Hobbit and things. Probably true, probably true, but here we go. been watching a bit of the Hobbit film with, with Lara, and there's a, there's a bit in the film, actually it's not in the books, where, when the good wizard Gandalf comes up against the evil Sauron. And they're in this broken and crumbling castle and they're kind of shrouded by darkness and Sauron attacks Gandalf and he says to Gandalf there is no light wizard that can defeat darkness and then they battle and Gandalf casts a light and it shines brightly but it is quickly overwhelmed by the darkness of Sauron there is no light that can defeat darkness unless of course It is the true light of God himself dwelling within us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He will overcome the darkness of death in our lives. We will rise again. He will overcome the darkness of sin in our lives. We will be free from the presence of sin. There is a light within us that no darkness can overcome. So one day, not only will we be free from the penalty of sin, not only will we be free from the power of sin, we will indeed be free from the presence of sin as well. And until then, as we finish, what do we do? We fight. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We fight. Jesus, by his Spirit, has set us free, and that means we fight. For years we were like prisoners of war, captured by sin and disarmed, but now Jesus, by his Spirit, has freed us. And so we fight. We put to death lust and hatred and selfish ambition and enviness and divisiveness. We kill cynicism and pride and indifference. We wage war against grumbling and self-pity and playing the victim and abdication of responsibility. We fight against sin wherever we see it in our hearts. Not because we are fearful of condemnation. No. But because we love Christ and we have been set free. 
Has nothing changed? In some ways, everything has changed. Because of Christ, because of his spirit, we are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. And one day we'll be free from the presence of sin as well. A moment of quiet, then I'm going to pray. Father, we started with those words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, they point us to the very heart of why all of these things are true. The death of our Savior on the cross on our behalf. Heavenly Father, may your spirit convince us, assure us that these things are true. And we pray that our lives even now would begin to look different. There would be more beauty than brutality. There would be more brilliance than damning, more glory than ugliness. And we pray that with great anticipation we will look forward to the day when that enemy of our sin is completely banished from our lives. But in the meantime, keep us fighting, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.